And welcome to those who are watching online as well. Uh, Margaret's going to read from uh, the scripture for us for this morning. Start again. Try again. Our Bible reading this morning comes from Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 21 to 34, from the New Living Translation, or NLT. Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. Suddenly a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil, unclean spirit cried out, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus reprimanded him, Be quiet. Come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into a convulsion, and then came out of him. Amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this, they asked excitedly. It has such authority. Even evil spirits obey his orders. The news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the whole region of Galilee. After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand and helped her sit up. Then the fever left her and she prepared a meal for them. That evening, after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people who were brought to Jesus, they were brought to Jesus and the whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases and he cast out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he didn't allow them to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Well, casting out demons and miraculous healing. This should be a bit of fun. We are walking through the Gospel of Mark slowly, passage by passage, this year. And uh, these are some of the first of the public events of Jesus' ministry. And, and with him at this stage are some fishermen, some ordinary men who he, Jesus had said to them, come and follow me. And uh, that's in the passage that we covered last week. He's, uh, Jesus has become their teacher or, or actually they're like their rabbi. And so he wants them to observe his ministry, to, to see what he's doing. And so that's what we've read in the, the passage today. James and John are with him in the temple, at least James and John. Um, and this is where, as we read, he preaches um, and then frees this man from uh, a demon. 
And then we're in Simon and Andrew's home. Simon, he's the one who's later called Peter. And they see him heal their mother-in-law at their home. Many scholars believe that this is why Peter later denied knowing Jesus. You've got to be listening. I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I love how Mark sets up the story of, of Jesus that um, he is telling uh, in this, this account. The focus is Jesus, of course. The story is all about Jesus. But uh, from the very beginning, Jesus is not going about his task alone. Yeah, he's, this, he's a one-of-a-kind person. He's the Son of God in the flesh. But there's this group who are alongside him all the way uh, that he's teaching and training and he's equipping them so that his mission won't stop with him. So that one day it will be continued on. Uh, they're like his apprentices. There's probably no, not many better words than that. And, and that's what I pray our attitude will be uh, to Jesus, even today. Learners who observe and then are willing to kind of take the baton from Jesus and continue on his ministry as uh, he gives us the opportunity to do that. So if that is what we are to be, like apprentices, learners, people who continue on his ministry, how on earth does that apply to casting out demons and healing the sick? This is quite a challenge and what we're going to explore today. So will you please pray for me, uh, with me now? Thank you, God, for this passage, this, these scriptures that have been passed down through the ages to us that we may read them today and and most of all, Lord, for the life of Jesus, our example, our teacher, our rabbi, and the one whose mission we carry forward. And as we look at uh, this passage from Mark's Gospel, we pray that you would help us to understand how this might impact our life, our words, our actions, even in the 21st century. Uh, help us to weigh up everything going on in our culture um, but most of all, to understand that your word is living and active and is our guide, our direction in life, a living word that opens up to us truth and guidance and uh, that you do that through your Holy Spirit, opening up meaning to us from these words. We, uh, we are open to you speaking to us today, Lord, and, and reshaping our hearts and minds that we may better serve you. And we pray that you'd help us do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exorcism. It doesn't happen every day in your typical Bible study or church service, but it was nonetheless a somewhat common event in Jesus' ministry. Now, this account that we read is one of four times that Jesus casts out a, a demon or an evil spirit from a person um, in Mark's Gospel. There's other accounts in the other Gospels. And then in Mark's Gospel, there's reference to many more times that it happens as well that are not specifically recorded. Uh, there's, there is historical record of this kind of thing, of exorcisms being performed, performed by people other than Jesus, but they're not, it's not just that there's some common, this is a common thing in their culture and Jesus was just doing the normal thing. They were rare, and what we've just read indicated, you might have noticed, it indicated that people were surprised by this and they were surprised by the way Jesus did it. It was, it was out of the ordinary for them, as it is for us. I don't know about you, I don't think you probably see people casting out demons in your workplace every day. I certainly don't. Furthermore, it 
just, it wasn't just this special Jesus, the Son of God thing. We know that later on, his disciples or his apprentices will be sent out to do the same. And it won't be straightforward for them. They, they only do so when they're commissioned by Jesus. Nevertheless, his disciples cast out evil spirits from people. And we read it in the Gospels. And then, of course, if you were to keep reading through the New Testament, we read it in the book of Acts after Jesus has ascended and his disciples carry on the mission. Uh, and finally, this, this thing of casting out of demons is not to be confused with miraculous healing. Clearly, the, the healing account that we read uh, in the second half of the reading from today, the healing of, of Simon's mother-in-law is different. It's a physical ailment that Jesus heals with a touch, whereas in the temple there is a spiritual entity distinct from and controlling the host, a human being, who speaks to Jesus and then Jesus speaks back to him. That's not what you do with a sickness. The best translation of the Greek is that the demon says to Jesus, go away and leave me alone, and Jesus literally tells him to shut up. That's basically what's happening. So this is not just some other kind of healing in disguise, using a bit of a metaphor. It's different. Um, and I'm going to get to that miraculous healing part later, but let's deal with the evil spirit first. Is anybody weirded out or confused? What is this all about? It doesn't sound like Christianity 101. You'd think maybe at the beginning of the gospel there'd be some example of Jesus just loving and forgiving someone. Oh, that's great. We can do that. Thank you, Jesus. No, casting out of a demon. Now, maybe your view is that it's all metaphorical, right? Or maybe you can believe that, it, that, that it, it happened then, but look, nowadays that has little relevance, surely. Now, there's, there is, to answer those thoughts, there's certainly metaphor and allegory in the Gospels, uh, but mostly in the form of stories that Jesus told, um, whereas this is a record of his life, of what happened in his ministry. And as mentioned the life of his apprentices were taught to do what he did and did do what he did. It would have to be stretching a metaphor a long way for it to then go on to the people he taught to do the same thing. It seems that this is just something that happened many times. There's uh, a few things going on in this passage. And this is just to unpack the, the text for us this morning. Uh, firstly, the demon tries to reveal Jesus' identity, but Jesus didn't let him. This is a spiritual entity who's going, I know who you are, Jesus. And this is a theme in Mark's gospel, which is all about uh, Jesus being proven to be the Messiah. Remember, we talked a little about, and the video from Bible Project, those videos are great to help us understand that this gospel is about Jesus' identity as the Messiah, the promised one of God. That is who he is. Uh, but Jesus constantly tells, constantly tells people who know his true identity, don't tell others. Okay, you worked it out. I don't want you to go and tell everyone yet. And that's, that's kind of strange. If it's all about Jesus becoming known as the Messiah, why doesn't he want people to know? It's because he wants to ensure that, the people, that people see the kind of Messiah he came to be. God, that God has sent one who came to be, not to be served, but to serve others, to be a servant to others. And Jesus needs some time to show that. He doesn't want people to assume he's going to be this political power figure, 
but someone who's come to serve and then to say, this is what God is like, this way I've been living, yeah, I'm the Messiah and that's what God is like. That's what I'm to be like in representing his kingdom. Another thing that's happening is that it's also the Sabbath and we won't, we'll deal with this another time. There's passages coming up more about how Jesus was quite good at breaking the religious rules and the religious leaders didn't like it when he did certain things on the Sabbath. But related to this and then the, the exorcism and the healing and also what the people um, observe in the temple when this happens is his authority that Jesus seems to have this special kind of authority. I really like the Greek word for this. I think it has oomph. It's called exousia. Say that with me. Exousia. I think that's how you say it. Jesus has exousia. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we, we unpacked from the baptism and temptations of Jesus uh, that this is one of those key parts of the kingdom responsibility Jesus has that tied with his identity as the Son of God, he has this authority in from God, that when he uses it, gives him great power. So Jesus has this authority. That's uh, about three weeks ago, two, two or three weeks ago, I think, if you want to go back to that message online. And in this particular case, in this particular scene, this exousia, this authority that Jesus has, is over the spirit realm, over, in this particular case, a spirit which is a wider representation of his authority over the spirit realm. The spirit realm is real. Yeah, yeah, I know God's a spiritual being, the Holy Spirit, all, I get that. No, no, no. The spirit realm, non-physical beings, aside from God, is real. The Bible talks of angels, created beings, messengers of God. Some of them even have names like the angel Gabriel. And, and then the Bible talks of, of demons or evil spirits being in opposition to God, ultimately serving and led by one of those created beings called, there's a whole number of names he has, Satan, Lucifer, the devil, the enemy, uh, the deceiver, various other titles in the scriptures as well. And it's one of these particular beings that Jesus confronts that he deals with in this account out of love for the man who is, who is afflicted, possessed by this demon. It's a little strange, I think, at first, that the evil spirit says to Jesus, why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you, not, did you notice that? Why are you, have you come to destroy us? There's other times when there is this group of evil spirits uh, afflicting somebody. But here, um, one of the, the, uh, the commentators suggests that um, it's simply that the, that the evil spirit is speaking on behalf of, quote, the whole threatened fraternity. So if you're saying, you know what, Jesus, you, you're coming after my whole clan here of evil spirits. Why are you interfering with us? The spirit realm is real. I've never encountered an evil spirit before, um, I, at least not like this. I've got a few friends who have. I've heard uh, plenty of stories of these kinds of encounters. I actually used to think, uh, wouldn't it be profound to be part of an, an exorcism like this? To, to pray in the name of Jesus and the, the person is released, the spirit comes out and then they find freedom and just observe that and be part of that. I now no longer think that, that it would be cool to be part of that. Because this is not to be taken lightly. 
Now, I'm going to get to the fact that we need not have any fear over this, but it's, this is not to be taken lightly. What Jesus demonstrates is this exousia, this authority over the spirit. He is more powerful than the evil spirit, and they submit to him, but we are not more powerful. We can be, we are human beings, like this poor man in the story, who is not mentioned other than he's, he's possessed, but we can be adversely affected by the spirit realm. And I should have put in here, and I will add in here, that I had, was, was grateful to have some very clear teaching on this many years ago to confirm that as believers in Jesus, as spirit-filled people, there is no possibility that we can be filled by another spirit. We must be clear on that. That there is no that, that we, we can be possessed and have the Holy Spirit. No, 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 it's just not possible. Uh, God casts everything else out of us when we choose to commit our lives to Jesus. But it's not to be taken lightly. There's a lot of theories as to why uh, in the Western world we, we don't see exorcisms or, or demonic manifestations of any kind all that often. Uh, one theory is that the devil has got plenty of influence over us with consumerism and social isolation through social media. Ironic, isn't it? And, and just lots of little man-made gods. That, so why use a more visible, you know, why, why would he use more visible demonic powers over us? And, and it's, it's probably a good point. There's plenty of us that's distracting our worship and attention. In some countries where there's a lack of basic provision, uh, of, 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 of just uh, basic human needs. Uh, that leads to a deep humility and a deep trust in God often. And so sometimes in those places, the supernatural, the spirit realm tends to be more prevalent, especially when there's cultural or religious factors that creep in. But even in the West, as people increasingly turn from money and, and turn from power as a source of fulfilment, I think more and more people are coming to realise that actually money doesn't make me happy and give me fulfilment. We're becoming more and more spiritual. Have you ever heard anyone say that? Actually, people don't want to have anything to do with Christianity, but, but they're spiritual people and I'm a spiritual being and there's more and more openness to spirituality. Is that a good thing? How many of you know someone who has crystals? How many of you uh, have heard of uh, that there's a New Age festival in Perth? Uh, I've seen there's mediums um, and the like on our local Facebook community pages that probably most of you are members of. There's, uh, I, got a, I got a thing in the mail this week, I meant to bring it with me, that just in you know, snail mail, a little flyer for somebody locally with, you know, readings and cards and all that, all that kind of thing. And without going too deep into this topic, I'd suggest that the influence of the demonic on our world and on our community is not as insignificant as we may think. C.S. Lewis, who wrote Chronicles of Narnia. Anyone know C.S. Lewis? Red Chronicles? Okay, cool. He wrote a fictional account called The Screwtape Letters where a senior demon in one part is advising a younger demon on laying low. Just listen to this. It's a fictional account, but it's a brilliant way of making the point. If, one, if once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man uh, not using but veritably worshipping what he vaguely calls forces while denying the existence of spirits, 
then the end of the war will be in sight. But in the meantime, we must obey our orders. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. Remember, this is like a senior demon writing to a younger demon who's training. The, f the fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing him, he therefore cannot believe in you. This is part of the strategy, especially I think in the Western world. The devil and demons are more than happy for us to believe they don't exist or aren't really doing much. But the point in the passage that we've read, part of the point is that Jesus exerts his authority over the spiritual demonic power and it caused people to take notice. And I want to suggest to you that the authority we have been given by Jesus is one not just to tackle the problems and the challenges of the physical, material world around us, but the spiritual realities around us as well. The forces that are, are working against God's purposes, in particular, are working against his church, because the church is full of people who are filled by the Holy Spirit. It has long been my conviction and my burden that there is more to what we do as a church than just the practical challenges and opportunities that we see with our natural eyes. If that is all we focus on, then we miss a lot. That There are some things that are so much harder to measure, they're so much harder to explain, so much harder to justify giving our time to, but are just as real and just as important and are only tackled with prayer and sometimes fasting as well. And this is kind of where I want to get to with this, that prayer... Is power over our spiritual adversaries and so necessary? We're going to see. We'll see in the coming weeks that Jesus, against the wishes of others, he 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 retreated to a secluded place to pray often. And I can't help but wonder if some of that that retreating, that being going to a secluded place, was to do battle with what Paul calls the principalities and powers. Forces and things and spirits beyond the seeing eye. We um we have a prayer room in this facility. It's uh, in the admin area on the in the in the, the far corner of the of the facility. And uh, one thing that for me came out of the 21 days of prayer and fasting that some of us participated in was a desire to see that room once again become a place, a retreat, even an engine room of prayer for the region. Uh, maybe one day we would be able to get to the point where that room was prayed in 24 hours a day. There's many 24-7 prayer, prayer rooms around the world that are an engine for the church of prayer. There's, there's something really powerful about prayer. There's something quite powerful about a prayed-in place. People have, have walked into that room before and said, this just feels like it's prayed in. <laughs> And it does. There's, there's some, even many elements of the transformation of our communities that is part of our vision as a church that will only happen in this spiritual battle through prayer. And for me, I, I admit, I'll be the first one to admit that it's not kind of this natural inclination that I just naturally go towards prayer and spending a lot of my time in it, but I do feel it's a call to obedience, not just for me, but for many of us. It may not be a natural thing because we are usually driven by the flesh, but the Spirit leads us into prayer. 
We'll come back to the casting out of evil spirits in a minute. But let's have a look at the second story from what we read before, the healing of Simon and Andrew's mother-in-law. Are you still with me? Yeah. Okay, so this is quite a different setting. It's not the big public space. It's not in the temple um, where Jesus is preaching and then there's this kind of thing that happens. Um, this is in the privacy of their own home, Simon and Andrew, their home and their family home, and, the, and, and there's no kind of, I demand you sickness, come out of her. It's just a simple touch. So his mother and Peter's mother-in-law is there, and she's a simple touch, and her fever subsides, and Jesus helps her up. So that's the setting here. And it's different, but the authority that Jesus has is still what's being executed, what's being used. This time it's authority over the material or the physical realm, over earth, if you like. He, he seems to have authority over that which we have no control, at least outside of the bounds of the, the laws of physics. But again, it's not, not sort of some special son of God magical ability that only he has. Just like with the casting out of evil spirits, Jesus will later send out his apprentices, his disciples, with the same exousia, the same authority to heal the sick. Now, uh, let me first well, let me say a few words about um, healing, and I want to be incredibly uh, careful with my words here. And I've tried to, yeah, to write what I'm going to say with with great care. Put your hand up if you've ever been sick. Yeah, I think hope, I'm guessing all of us. Put your, keep your hand up if you've ever enjoyed being sick. Now, maybe other than when you're a kid and, you know, you get weighted on hand and foot, your mum would bring you lemonade to help your tummy, that kind of thing. But I don't think, generally speaking, these days, any of us particularly enjoy being sick in any, in any way. It's uh, ultimately not something that is part of God's good creation. It's part of the, the fall. We won't go into, into depth with that. It's part of the brokenness of this world. Let's assume for a minute that we all agree that there is some biblical justification for followers of Jesus having the authority and ability to heal the sick through prayer. Now, I know that in this room there will be varying levels of comfort or agreement with this, but let's, let's assume for a minute that we have some level of agreement around this. It's absolutely true that some Christians have turned this privilege of carrying the authority of Jesus to heal the sick into a kind of a brash arrogance where if you're not healed, you're just not praying with enough faith. And sadly, that can have the opposite effect of, of, of loving, compassion and gentle touch that Jesus has. That is his motivation, the loving and gentle touch of Jesus. And it's easy to take the example of Jesus not being able to heal the sick in one scene that happens in the gospel. He's not able to do many healings. It's able to take that and then pinpoint a lack of faith as the reason that there is no healing in any case. If there's never healing, then it must be because there's a lack of faith. It's easy to make that assumption. And yet, it seems clear from both the writers of the New Testament, 2,000 years of history of the saints through the ages, that there is no formula. There is no one-size-fits-all, that the assumption that prayer plus faith equals healed can even be hurtful and sometimes very unwise. However, the authority given to Jesus has been given to us in Christ, who are in Christ. And 
that authority includes the authority to pray that the results of the fall, the results of this, this brokenness that we experience in this world, to pray that they will one day be done away with by Jesus and to pray that a taste of that new creation could be experienced now, that prayer might bring a foretaste of the coming kingdom. And some of you have experienced that foretaste, this miraculous healing. Some of you have prayed for it and seen it happen, maybe even before your very eyes. We've done a little bit of prayer for healing at the Billabong, and for some, that's an expected part of what the church does. That's, that's, that's normal Christian prayer. For others, I do understand that this is foreign, confronting, and to be approached with great concern, maybe because of experience. I probably can't help you if it's because you simply don't believe in anything beyond the purely laws of, the laws of physics, because otherwise there's a lot in the Gospels to be, you have to wrestle with. But if it's because of the way it's been handled, I understand that. But Jesus is our teacher in this. This is, this is what I want us to take home today. Jesus is our teacher in these areas. He shows us the way. We see in this passage that he heals with gentleness. He heals with a touch, a, a, a hand up for Simon's mother-in-law. That's it. We see in other places that he heals out of a heart of compassion, that he is moved in his heart to release his healing power. At other times, he rewards a desire and a passion, even the faith of a person's friends. There's boundaries around the healing that Jesus performs. It's not something that he does to get recognition. In fact, we'll see next week that he has to restrict this because he's got a bigger task of proclaiming the good news, and that is on his plate. That is important. But he does heal, and he does use an authority over the brokenness of the material world, the same authority that's being given to us. There's also a connection between the proclamation of the gospel and the supernatural and miraculous. These, these miracles of Jesus, they provide us sometimes with a platform. They provide Jesus with a platform to share the good news he's been sent to share. And this is something for us not to overemphasize, but certainly to be challenged with, that the, the exercise of this authority over the material, even the material world, to heal the sick and tell demons where to go as well, may be used to give opportunity to preach the good news. And I don't necessarily recommend that you start with going to your non-believing friends and praying for their healing in hope that then they'll be open to you sharing your story with them or sharing the good news. But as someone, as people who are called to testify to Jesus... To point people to him. The life of Jesus tells me that if I'm willing to exercise the authority given to me by God, should the opportunity present itself, if I'm willing to exercise that exousia that he has and has given to me, then maybe that's a stepping stone towards an opportunity to share my story or to share, to talk about Jesus or maybe to invite to church. Maybe that's the thing that for some people it will break down the barrier between their atheism or agnosticism and belief in Jesus.
I see clear examples in the scriptures and in the modern church of believers praying for non-believers for healing as God gives them the opportunity and God's miraculous work being the thing that breaks down those barriers. It happens all the time through history. So, in Jesus' case, these, these two events that we've looked at today, the casting out of an evil spirit, healing of Simon's mother-in-law, these are authority over the spirit realm, their authority over the material world. They draw people to Jesus and his message. And uh, we read at the end of this passage that many people came to Jesus. Jesus healed many people who were, with, who were sick and with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And so it's, it wasn't just this one-off occasion. It led to many, many more. So with a few minutes I've got left, my question, or maybe your question, is so what? What do we, what do, we do with that? What do we do with this? How do, what's some guidelines around this? What do, we, what do we do with this? Aside from the suggestions that I've already made, what practically is some guidance here? First, and I'm just going to say two things, which is more about our attitude towards it. We have plenty of time because, believe it or not, the Gospel of Mark is full of plenty more occasions and experiences like this. I have plenty of time to unpack more, but some attitude uh, direction here. Firstly, I would say that perfect love drives out all fear. Aren't you glad about that? Whether that be fear of the dark spiritual forces over here, or whether that be fear from an uncomfortableness of the challenge of using the authority. I know that's probably my fear sometimes. Like, uh, I'm not Jesus. How How do I exercise this? Even when the opportunity presents itself. We exercise the authority that we have from Jesus out of a place of love, not out of a place of fear, and that God's looking down on us going, when are you going to do this? Out of a place of deep love for others. If we have no compassion for those who are afflicted by the demonic, we have no reason to then intercede in prayer on their behalf. Or if we just love our comfort and our reputation more than we love someone who is sick, we either won't pray for them or maybe we'll pray for them, but it'll be out of selfish motive and hesitation. Neither is driven from love, but if we are driven out of a place of love, maybe we'll pray that way. And I don't in any way claim to be the perfect model of Jesus in this area, not by a long shot, but when I have the opportunity to pray for someone every now and then for healing, Uh, I tend to pray this, something like this anyway. Father, we love you. And and we know that you love the person's name deeply, more than anyone else. We we know that you love them, Lord. And we know it breaks your heart that they're in pain right now and that that is simply a result of this broken world. We know that your son Jesus is coming back one day to make all things right, to wipe away the sickness, the grief, the pain. And we look forward to that. Even still, we ask right now for a foretaste of that future kingdom, that coming reality. We ask for it by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray you do this, God, so that they can testify to your goodness here and now. And we thank you for it in advance for what you're going to do. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Something like that. A declaration of love, a recognition of brokenness, a request for a foretaste of that, and then thankfulness for whatever God might do. It's, just, it's, it's pretty simple. And so then we wait and see what God does. Maybe we'll pray again. There's no need for pressure 
or fear because ultimately God's in control. And that would be my second point. We need not fear because our faith and our confidence is completely in God, in Jesus. Not in our prayers or our ability or our, the way we construct our words or anything like that. The authority comes from Jesus. It's why we pray in the name of Jesus. Imagine how wrong it would be for God, we ask that you do this in, the name, in, in my authority, we pray. It wouldn't really work. No, in the name of Jesus. The responsibility is ultimately Jesus's, and we just share a bit of it. So all that being said, I just wonder, church, and, and, and by the way, if you've come for the first time this morning and I'm preaching on casting out demons and healing the sick, welcome. We really love having you here. Next week won't be quite the same. Uh, I wonder what we are missing sometimes in this. If we, if we think the authority of Jesus to overcome demons and sickness alike was given only to him, what opportunities to testify that he is good are we missing? And while we'll leave it to another week to address some of the finer points of casting out demons, maybe, I also want to say, you know, what if we are, what are we missing if, if everything that we do is determined only by what we see with our natural eyes? That everything we do is, come, comes from purely what I see here and what I hear here. If that's the case, time in prayer is waste of time. According to what my eyes see and my ears tell me, it's, it's no good. It doesn't produce fruit much of the time. But if there's any truth to the claim of the Gospels and the rest of the Bible that there's more to this world than what our eyes can see, then maybe the best use of our time is doing battle with those things that are fighting against God, those spirits that are fighting against God on our knees. Not from a place of fear, from a deep love for the lost and the broken around us. What might we be missing? What could we do about it? Let me pray and then we have a couple of questions for discussion. Father, thank you for your word, even when it's challenging to us, even when it causes us to really think deeply about who we are as people who are in Christ. And we pray that you would help us through conversation with one another and a deep exploration of your word through the guidance of your spirit that you would help us to weigh all this up and put it into practice in a way that honours and glorifies you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Questions I've got for discussion are simply this. What are your hesitations and your hopes with regards to the prayer for these two things, whether that be healing or against spiritual things? What are your hesitations? Because you may well have some. But what are your hopes as well? And would... Uh, would you like, if you're praying with someone, one or two people next to you, if there is something that they would like prayer for, then I would love you to pray for them. If they, if it's not about, is there something I should pray for? It's if, would you like, just ask the person you're talking with, would you like prayer for anything? If they say no, that's fine. But if they would, then please pray for them. Alrighty, so we'll give you, we'll, we'll take some time to, to uh, talk through those things, and then we'll wrap up for the day.